As I mentioned earlier, we are excited that Patrick Donahue is with us this morning. Patrick met with our missions committee, I guess it was probably a couple years ago, maybe two or three years ago, uh, and shared with us the vision of, of what God had called him to do. God had put on his heart to plant a church in, in North Baltimore City. And uh, we as a committee were excited by that and, and have partnered with some of our missions um, committee budget with him and the church for the last couple of years. And so we're really excited that Patrick could join us this morning that he could share with us a little bit about what's going on in North Baltimore City and, uh, and also to bring God's word to us that we could hear and, and catch a vision for what God is doing and how he's growing his church near and far. So Patrick, welcome, and we're glad you're here this morning. Well, good morning. It's great to be with you this morning. Greetings from City Church in Baltimore City. They're having a worship service right now. One of my elders is preaching, so he's very nervous. Pray more for him than for me at this point. He's very nervous. Uh, So great to be here with you this morning. Uh, Thankful so much for uh, the support of Grace EP Church over the years in our adventure in church planting. Uh, We launched worship services in Baltimore City about two and a half years ago. We are uh, what's called a scratch plant, and that is a a church that starts with just a pastor. So it was just us a couple of years ago uh, that moved into Baltimore City. And God, of course, has blessed us in great uh, in wonderful ways. In fact, we just uh, organized as a particular church, which uh, means something in the eyes of our denomination, uh, just this past January. So God has been faithful uh, and wonderful to build his church uh, in the neighborhoods of North Baltimore. You'll hear a little bit more about it uh, in the sermon uh, this morning. I've loved uh, the theme, as Kevin shared uh, with me this morning, uh, and uh, this week, actually, from John chapter 10 that we read uh, earlier about how there are sheep that are not yet in the fold. And uh, that is a powerful thing that Jesus shared, that he is the good shepherd, but there are sheep that are not yet in the fold. And it is a wonderful reminder Uh, that we do not exist just for ourselves. We don't exist just to build a wonderful institution where we get to spend time with one another. We actually exist for the worship of God and for the spread of the message of the gospel to people who are outside of our walls as well. So as I thought about that, I thought, what better uh, book to go to to consider our mission than the book of Acts? So our passage this morning is taken from Acts uh, chapter 17. I can't read the whole story that gives us the greater context, but I'll explain it uh, as we go through the sermon. I'm going to be reading uh, Acts chapter 17, verses 22 to 34. This is God's word. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything." And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. 
Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own prophets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your presence with us here this morning, Lord, that that, uh, you promise that you inhabit the praises of your people, and we're reminded that your presence is just as real as our very own. But Father, we're also thankful for your word. We're thankful for the message of the gospel that comes through it and the mission that you call us to that we read about in the scriptures. Be with us now as we meditate on it. May your spirit speak into our hearts in such a way that we leave here changed as a result. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. The book of Acts uh, shares for us the, uh, really the initial steps uh, of the church as they began to live out the gospel after Jesus uh, resurrected or ascended back into heaven. It's written, of course, uh, by Luke. It gives us lots of accounts and lots of sermons and lots of wonderful stories. And in the process, it shows us the beginning of this movement called Christianity. One that we've, of course, been exposed to, but one movement that even sociologists and historians that don't share our faith would say has been one of the most powerful movements in all of human history. In fact, one of those uh, sociologists named Rodney Stark, I don't know what his faith commitments are, but one day he chose to, to do the math on this movement of Christianity. And what he discovered is that at Jesus' death, there were probably about 12 to 20 people that we could call Jesus' followers. By the time he ascended back into heaven, the number was probably close to around 60 people that would call themselves followers of Jesus Christ. When we get to Acts chapter 2, we see 3,000 people converted after one sermon, which brings the number up to a little over 3,000 people. And then if you fast forward just 350 years, Rodney Stark discovered that the number of people that claimed to be followers of Jesus Christ was 34 million people. Within 350 years, 34 million people called themselves followers of Jesus Christ. When I read that and as I've looked at the book of Acts, I thought, how did this movement happen? What incredible power fueled this movement of Jesus Christ? And of course, there's lots of reasons, both spiritual and practical reasons. There's lots of reasons. But what I'd like to do this morning is to just look at one or two of those reasons that then help us think about what it means for us 
to engage in the mission of the gospel in our culture. Henry David Thoreau, who is a a famous poet, wrote that uh, most men lead lives of quiet desperation. And when he wrote that, he said that he was getting at the idea that most people go through life without any sort of purpose and direction. Because of that, it leads to a a deep-seated sense of dissatisfaction in most people in our culture. We are probably the busiest generation ever, but at the same time, we're probably one of the most bored generations ever. It's probably why we love reading hero stories and, and watching hero movies that are abundant in our culture because we admire heroes for living for something that is bigger than themselves. And we secretly wish we had something that could unite our lives in a similar way. Well, in Acts chapter 1, when Jesus is ascending back into heaven, he delivers a mission to his followers. It comes in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, where Jesus says, But you will receive power from my Holy Spirit when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all of Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Whenever I read this passage, I think of the great spiritual classic movie called Ferris Bueller's Day Off. One of my favorite movies when I was a kid. And actually, if you watch that movie, it's a, it's a funny movie, but uh, if you watch the credits, there's actually a scene that comes after the credits where Ferris Bueller, the main character, comes up and he looks out into the audience and he says, why are you still here? The movie's over. Get going. Get moving. Get out of here. Well, I always think about that when I read this passage because Acts chapter 1 tells us that after Jesus gave his mission and ascended back into heaven, I imagine his followers are still looking up in the clouds at Jesus who just ascended. And then when their gaze comes back down, what do they see? They see two men, probably angels. And what do the angels say to him? Get going. It's time to go. Get to the work of this kingdom. Get to the mission that you've been called to. This morning, I'd like to look at three things about this idea of mission. The first is the substance of the mission. The second is the extent of this mission. We're going to spend some uh, extended time looking at that point. And then finally, the motivation for this mission. But the first point is really uh, the substance of this mission that God gives us. And of course, you see it in the first part of that verse. You will be my witnesses. Essentially what Jesus is saying is, tell everyone what you have seen and what you have heard. Talk it up. Gossip about the kingdom around the water cooler. Share people the good news of Jesus Christ as you rub shoulders with them. In the first century, when a king was enthroned, a new king was enthroned, he would send out heralds that would go all throughout towns and villages announcing that there was a shift in power, that there was now a new king. And everyone in those towns and villages knew that when that herald came, nothing was going to be the same again. You see, those first followers were to announce that a new king and a new kingdom had arrived. It was a kingdom that didn't look like any other earthly kingdom before, And that kingdom had now been realized, and everything was about to change. 
These witnesses, these followers, these first century heralds were not trained in evangelism like we often get trained in. They weren't trained in apologetics. They simply had the best news ever. The news that our rescue had come in the person of Jesus Christ. Because of that, nothing will ever be the same again. This is the substance of the mission. Secondly, we see the extent of the mission. We keep reading in this verse, it says, Be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now, if you've been to uh, missions Sundays before, or missions conference, or even if you've hung around in the church long enough, you know what these words mean. We often think of them as sharing the gospel with those that we immediately rub shoulders with, and then the next towns and villages, and then to the ends of the earth, all over the earth, were to share this message. But this morning, what I'd like to do is approach this idea from a different perspective. Because I think when we read these, we think of them as purely geographical when I think something even bigger is is happening here. Because the extent of the mission of God isn't just about geography, but it's about breaking all sorts of boundaries. Boundaries of race, boundaries of, of geography, boundaries of socioeconomics, of class, and of culture. And the bottom line is that the mission of God can take you anywhere. It can take you nowhere in the fact that you stay right where you are, or it can take you everywhere. The, uh, the name of the, the sermon that I've uh, entitled this morning is A Tale of Two Cities. And uh, some of you may shudder at that, remembering how you had to read that book at some time when you were in school. But uh, I named it that because I want us to see some important things about what happens in the book of Acts when it comes to the extent of God's mission. If you read the book, you'll learn that those first century Christians were very, very passionate about taking the gospel to all the different cities of the ancient world. In fact, you see Jesus' followers going to all different cities all throughout the ancient world and in some ways tailoring the message of the gospel according to the audience that they were interacting with. In Acts chapter 17, we read about Paul in the city of Athens. He was in the city of Athens because he was on the run. He was being pursued by people that were persecuting him. And we know that he was there to to hide out. But even though he was there to hide out, he couldn't help himself but share the message of the gospel as he walked the streets of Athens. If you look at history, you'll learn that Athens at this time was one of the kind of cultural and intellectual centers of the ancient world. It was, of course, the, the philosophical capital of the ancient world in the sense that there were four major schools of philosophy in the city of Athens. The Epicureans, the Stoics, and others all found their home in Athens. And it was a a great museum of, of statues or idols that were all directed to all sorts of different gods. It was the home of the Parthenon, and it was the the headquarters of of Greek mythology that we all probably studied in school. But at this time, Athens was an incredibly influential city 
in terms of how it shaped the culture of the ancient world. In fact, it was so culture-shaping that even the philosophical influence that was great in the, de- in the heyday of Athens, we still deal with today. Those philosophies still impact the way people think today. When Paul was in Athens, he went to the center of it all. He went to the Agora, which was a marketplace where people gathered to vet and, and debate and present new ideas and thoughts about the fabric of our world. And it was the, the very center of the city's activity. And Paul went there and began speaking about the kingdom of God. It intrigued so many people that they invited him to go to the Areopagus, a place where his ideas could be heard and vetted even more so. This was uh, the, the supreme court in which new philosophical ideas would be debated. This was the, the very court that tried and condemned Socrates and his uh, philosophical ideas. And to receive the approval of this court was a high and enviable sanction. This place was the very center of the ancient philosophical culture And it is here, in this context, that Paul preaches this sermon that we just read. And in it, what Paul does is he challenges the high culture of Athens with the message of the gospel. He challenges their pluralism and their rampant idolatry that was all over the place. He challenges their culture in the hopes that the new message of the gospel would not just change their hearts and their lives, but also change their culture and in the process change the culture of the entire ancient world. When he was there, he spoke about the resurrection, the very thing that we just celebrated on Easter Sunday, and they reacted negatively. They thought Paul was crazy to suggest that someone could be resurrected from the dead. But our passage tells us that some were converted. It tells us about Dionysus and Damaris that were converted to the message of the gospel. And as we look at church history, Dionysus was later believed to have become the bishop of Athens, the head of Paul's church that began in Athens. So what we see in our passage is that that Paul took the gospel to this high culture of Athens. But Acts tells us about other cities that Paul went to that were very, very different than Athens. If you look at Acts chapter 11, you read uh, about a city called Antioch that the message of the gospel took hold in in the first century world. When Acts was written, Antioch was the third largest city in uh, the Roman Empire, and it wasn't, but, it, but because, even though it was big, it wasn't a big city in terms of its size. It was actually quite small. Many believed that the city was only kind of one square mile around, but it was still very large because the city was dense. Within that one square mile was roughly 195 people per acre. If that's hard for you to imagine, imagine the density of New York City and multiply that by two. And that's what you had in the city of Antioch. It was a center for great trade and culture, 
But because it was bound by a wall, the only place for people to build was what way? To build up. So they would build these large structures that people would live in, but they often couldn't handle the weight. So it was very common for buildings to collapse in the city of Antioch and kill thousands of people in the process. Most people in Antioch lived in in tiny little cubicles where they would have to crowd in their family and their possessions and their livestock. And they would have to, to build fires in these little cubicles just to stay warm. And because of the danger of that, often these buildings would catch on fire and burn to the ground, killing thousands of people. The streets in in Antioch were so narrow that people could hang out the window and carry on conversations with the building next to them. Very easily, just chatting about this and that. That's how dense this city was. There was little to no uh, sanitation in the city. So often people, when they had to use the restroom, would go in pots and then dump those pots outside of the window. I can imagine this is where the ancient term heads up came from if you were walking on the streets of Antioch. There was no easy way to dispose of dead bodies, so they would often be left in the streets just to decay. And of course, all these factors combined together would lead to all sorts of disease and infection in the city. And often, massive diseases would end up wiping out large portions of the city's population. Crime rates were high in Antioch, and as if that wasn't enough, there was an incredible moral degradation in the city too. Just a half mile outside of the city was the the temple uh, to to Daphne and all of the, the cult prostitution that would go along with that temple. On top of all this, the city was prone to natural disaster. There would be earthquakes and other natural disasters that would decimate the city from time to time. The city in its history had been burned to the ground entirely four times. And historians believe that if you lived in the city of Antioch, that you would uh, be homeless about three or four times within your time living in that city. It was such a difficult city to live in. And yet... And yet, as difficult as this city was, as as sad as an existence that it offered, the first century Christians moved into this mess. The scriptures tell us that Barnabas rushed into the mess of Antioch and planted a church there. And the movement of the gospel spread so powerfully in Antioch that he recruited Paul to be a co-minister with him there in the city. In fact, the book of Acts tells us that Antioch was the city where followers of Jesus Christ were first called Christians or Christ ones. So just imagine for a moment in all this filth, seeing people sitting in their window wells chatting about all these people in the city who don't stop talking about Jesus Christ. It was here in this city that Paul chose to be the base of his operation for all of his missionary journeys. And Antioch became the center for Christianity in the first century world. 
So think for a moment about these two cities. Think about Athens, and then think about Antioch. On the one hand, you have a city known for its high intellectual culture, and in another city, you learn about crime and filth and disease and difficulty. You see the high culture of Athens and the low culture of Antioch, and yet in the midst of it, the gospel took root in both contexts. I read an article not too long ago in a a magazine that is published in Baltimore City that compared uh, cities to beehives. I don't know how much experience that you have with beehives. We've had one at our home that I had to take down at one point. made me very nervous whenever I have to interact with beehives. But the article made this illustration that cities are like beehives. There's lots of activity. There's lots of things going on all over the place. And they become centers of activity and ingenuity and all sorts of interesting things. And the argument of the article is that cities are important because of so much activity. They produce, uh, become great centers of ingenuity and innovation. And all sorts of wonderful things get churned up and produced in the activity of cities. And that, of course, is very true. But cities also become the focal points for other things, too. They become the focal points for all sorts of oppression and crime and injustice in our world. To put it really simplistically, cities contain both the best and the worst that humanity has to offer. And that is why you see those first century Christians rushing into the cities to communicate the message of the gospel. Whenever I share this with people, I always have to use an illustration from our uh, church planting context. Our church plant is in the north part of Baltimore City, and it is a, a very, very unique context in which to plant a church. The neighborhood our church is in uh, is a neighborhood that's called uh, Roland Park, and it's a, it's a wonderful neighborhood. It's beautiful, it's, it's scenic, uh, it feels a little bit like the suburbs, despite the fact that it is still in the city. And uh, when we first started, when we first moved into the neighborhood and began thinking about planting, we studied all the demographics of the area. And what we learned is that if you grow up and live in the area of Roland Park in Baltimore City, your life expectancy is right around 83 years of life, which is higher than, I think, the national average. And the mean income for someone who lives in the neighborhood of Roland Park is right around $96,000 a year. But if you drive just one mile away, you'll be in a neighborhood called Park Heights. And if you're in the neighborhood of Park Heights, your life expectancy is 60 three years, and your average income is around $26,000 a year. Now think about that for a second. Driving from one neighborhood to the next is a 20-year difference on your life expectancy. On the other side of where I live, uh, I live on uh, uh, just a half mile from one of the the main kind of roads that goes north-south in Baltimore City. And if you look at the demographics of this neighborhood, you'll realize that on one side of the street is 98% African-American poverty, and on the other side of the street is 98% white 
affluence. And in some places, there's even a wall to keep the two neighborhoods separated. And I'm not even exaggerating. Many have looked at this and they've wondered, what can break down all of these barriers? What is something that can appeal to both the spirit of Athens and the spirit of Antioch that exists not just in Baltimore City, but all over our world? What breaks down these barriers? And many people have tried different and valiant attempts to break down those barriers through different social programs, and they've had some change, but in the end, it hasn't changed things very much. What is the answer? Well, the answer lies in the very gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is the thing that can break down all these differences, because what the gospel does is it, it reveals to everyone, no matter what socioeconomic demographic you are from, it reveals to everyone that all of us live in spiritual poverty, regardless of our wealth, regardless of our circumstances, regardless of our culture. Because sin, at the end of the day, becomes our greatest equalizer. We all stand before God in spiritual poverty. It's in the gospel that we are confronted with this poverty, and then in the midst of that poverty, we are given by faith the riches of Jesus Christ and a relationship with God the Father. You see, the mission of God doesn't just move us geographically, but it moves us beyond barriers of race and class and socioeconomics. The truth is, whether you live in a city or whether you don't, the mission of God takes you some, to sometimes very surprising and very unlikely places. And the question that we have to ask ourselves whenever we read the book of Acts or Jesus' words on John chapter 10, whenever we think about this idea of mission, what about you? What about me? What about us? What about God's church? What places of influence, like the city of Athens, what places of influence has God called you to be agents of his kingdom? But also we have to ask ourselves, what instances of oppression and injustice, like we see in the city of Antioch, what places of oppression and injustice are we faced with each day that we are called to carry the gospel into? You see, the gospel drives us to be agents of this kingdom in all of those places. It calls us to embrace both the spirit of Athens in our culture today and the spirit of Antioch, to embrace every sector of society and culture. So we see the, the substance of this Mission. We see the, the extent of this mission. Of course, we looked at it from a different angle. But finally, we see the motivation for this mission. We've probably all heard, if we've grown up in the church, we've all heard sermons like this over the years. And we have all sorts of varied responses to sermons like this. At least I know I have when I've heard sermons like this. And one of the most practical questions I always ask myself whenever I hear these messages is, 
How can I do this? How is this possible for me? How can I engage all these things in my life and in my culture? How can I do this? Well, the good and freeing news is you can't. I can't. We can't. But God can do it through us. Acts 1.8, but you will receive power. The Greek word there means dynamite. Great power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You see, the Spirit of God is the only thing that really has the power to bring life and to break down all of those barriers. The second question I always ask myself whenever I hear sermons like this is how do I stay centered on this mission? I've heard sermons like this before. I've heard emphases like this before. And I often leave with lots of energy to share the gospel and maybe even people that God's put on my heart to share the gospel with. I get very excited about the mission. But after a few weeks, that excitement tends to dwindle away a little bit. That passion tends to go. So the question we have to ask ourselves is, what can sustain this sense of mission in our hearts and in our lives? What was the the conviction or the motivation that sustained those apostles as they went from city to city fulfilling the mission of Jesus after he left? And the answer to that question lies in the very message of the gospel itself. Because it lies in the recognition that Jesus was on mission too. His mission was to bring redemption and rescue to you and to me. Mark chapter 10. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom. You see, your rescue, my rescue, was so precious to Jesus and to God the Father that it took him all the way to the cross where he sacrificed his life. And the more you and I can believe the message of the gospel, the more we root ourselves in our faith and belief in the gospel, the more we will find ourselves caught up in the mission of Jesus Christ that he has placed in our lives because he was on mission for us. My prayer for you, my prayer for me, my prayer for all of us, for all of the church, is that we can rejoice this morning that his mission was accomplished. And may we all be swept up more and more in the mission of God as we believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you don't uh, just offer us redemption and all the blessings that come from that, forgiveness, adoption, justification, all the things that come from a relationship with you. But you don't just give us that, but you also give us a mission. You give us purpose. You give us direction. You give us something that Uh, is to unite our lives, something that is bigger than us. Father, we confess that we often forget about that mission. 
Sometimes we think it's all up to us. We forget about your spirit. Sometimes we just forget about it entirely. But Father, you have given us this gospel, not just for us and for our benefit, but you have given us this gospel that ought to propel us into mission, into every sector of society. So Father, I pray that our movement in mission would not be fueled by guilt, would not be fueled by shame or even by duty, but it would be fueled by an intense sense of gratitude for the fact that you came to this earth on mission for us. May the gospel be the thing that propels us into mission. We pray all this in Jesus Christ's name.